Tools, we are good. All right, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Recovery Lab Podcast. We're here on Facebook and TikTok. <laughs> and although I'm fond of saying I think t- TikTok is hot garbage, welcome. We, we are... TikTok. Like, like I said on the post earlier, we are acutely aware that there are uh, a lot of individuals who don't necessarily agree or uh, use TikTok. That said... Um, there are a lot of young folks that are on TikTok They're about it. that would not be reached if it were just on Facebook. And Danny has so many subscribers on TikTok that we're able to do the live on yeah. TikTok. Okay. I didn't even know that was a limitation. Anyway, <laughs> again, I'm Drew Hassan. This is the Recovery Lab podcast, podcast series. This is podcast number 12. Today we welcome the learned Bodie McDonald, prosecutor. Ridgeland Municipal Court and private criminal defense attorney. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, I've got a couple introductory remarks and then we'll get going. Okay. All right, everybody. So the comment section is doing a little bit better, although we welcome more and more involvement. Please give us your constructive criticism if something you think would be would make a difference and make this better. We're all ears. Uh, no ego here. We're not uh, professional podcasters. This is just something we want to be helpful to people. If you know of some fact that would be of some benefit to people in recovery, please post it. The example I always give is uh, End It For Good. You can find them on Facebook. They give away Narcan. Usually the Pines in Columbus gives away Narcan. Mr. Moore's Bicycle Shop in Hattiesburg gives away Narcan. I'm sure there are thousands of other places. Those are just the ones I know about. But if you have something, some knowledge about recovery that could be of some benefit, certainly post it. It doesn't have to be limited to, to Narcan. Then, continuing in our begathon, just like NPR and K-Love, we need your financial support too. So I'm still sticking with my uh, Cash App code, cash tag Daniel Hassan, $5, $10, all of it is some, uh, will be used for the podcast. It's not wasted or helping uh, Danny and me live high on the hog. I <laughs> promise. Uh, so, oh, so two th- two people I need to give a shout out to for having supported the podcast. One is Joey Erickson, who is a car salesman here in town. He and I grew up together. He had blonde hair when he was a child, and my hair's dark. And apparently, they called us Salt and Pepper. There you go at the daycare. Uh, the other one is Will Blunt, who can handle all of your insurance needs. He saved me money on my car insurance. Better than Geico. Oh, wow. So I'm going to tag both of them, but y'all appreciate it. Thank you both. It meant a lot to me. Uh, all right, without further ado, welcome, man. Thank, thank you for you. coming. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to see you two guys. I have not seen you in a while, and your life has changed a lot since I last saw you. <laughs> it, has. it has. For the good. Yeah, for good. For good. Yes. All right, so tell us who you are. What do you do? Wow. Uh, Bodie McDonald, I serve, I wear several hats. I'm a city prosecutor in Ridgeland, but I also do a little bit of defense work. Um, I've been very, very fortunate to be in that position in Ridgeland for years. Before I was the city prosecutor there, I was the public defender there, which also then spun into me serving as a public defender in circuit court for felony cases also. So uh, I tell people, Doing both makes me better at both. Sure. I get to see the world both from the power side as a prosecutor and the begging side as a defense lawyer, and hopefully it makes me makes me better at both. <clears throat> well, it's that working knowledge of the requirements laid out by statute that, you know, helps you find the ins and outs for both sides, I would imagine. Yeah, and we may get into this in the questions you asked, but also there's an, uh, a special history. My father, who just died in September... Um, after two years of dementia, but he, when I was a senior in high school, went into treatment. And I got such a view about addiction and alcoholism. And because my mother had gone to Al-Anon. I didn't know this about you until, oh, yes. uh, until uh, Danny told me, and I was like, that's a part of him I didn't know about. Oh, it's critical. I was a senior in high school. Um, my dad, uh, when he, he spun down into alcoholism and addiction really quickly. Uh, and I guess we could say fortunate, my family was fortunate, but he had a one-car DUI wreck. And I just learned this from my mom recently when we were talking about that history. Uh, and I have a smile on my face, but it, the, the way he was caught, 
he had the wreck and left the scene. He hit, I think he hit a stop sign or hit some property. Left the scene <laughs> and comes back 30 or 45 minutes later while they're investigating the scene. They go, hey, that's the guy. That's him? Uh, yeah, yeah, but it was providential because he, he got arrested. And my mom, who had been going to Al-Anon, and we, at which she learned all about codependency. My mom's a strong woman, a little bitty short woman, but she's strong. And she was, she was basically enabling my dad. He was a contractor, and she was enabling him. And at this point, when we bailed him out of jail, she said, and I'm only barely paraphrasing, she basically said, I love you, but you got to get sober or you're going to get out. And back in those days, it was the CDU unit, chemical dependency unit. Sure. That's, yeah, that's been knocked down now. Uh, but he went in, probably only because he was thinking, okay, I'll put this reckoning off a little bit longer. Um, got sober, and came out, got involved in AA, was president of AA, I think, for two years. Um, and I, I'll, I'll tell some stories later, probably in the podcast, but I've had people who'll come up to me and say, hey, your dad was important in my life. I know I, I would go to Home Depot with him, and people would come Was up, he in recovery here in Jackson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was your dad's first Carl, name? Carl, Carl McDonald. Uh, the, and I'll give you a little aside. So the last 44 years of his life, except for one event, he was sober. But at some point, and I was away in law school living in New York, he fell off the wagon. And when he did, it so embarrassed him that he he left the recovery community. He'd been a big leader in the recovery community. So for the folks out there who are listening, I hope if they have that event, they have the strength to come back because being a sponsor, being a leader is so important. And my dad was that for quite a while, but when he fell off the wagon for that time. The shame. Mm-hmm, the shame. He, he, he never right. came back. And it was just terrible that he didn't come back because, uh, I'll give you an example, in my court four or five years ago, I had a woman in the back who didn't look, I had someone whisper to me, hey, that's, and I won't divulge who, but she's a public official. And so I, it was ticket day. It was traffic court day. And I kind of made my way around and said, hey, can I help you? Well, her daughter had a ticket. And what I oftentimes do with kids who have tickets is I chew their ass, I show them the video, and I say to them, hey, it's not you I'm worried about. It's the people that you're driving around that you can't account for. Right. The mom looks at me like she's seen a ghost. Anyway, I I had the girl write a paper. I said, I'll remand the ticket. It was a rainy day. About 30 minutes later, the court clerk, court's over, court clerk buzzes me and says, hey, uh, somebody down here wants to see you. So it was that mom. And she said, okay, I couldn't say this in the courtroom, but i got to tell you something. I thought I saw a ghost when I saw you. Your dad, when I was 19, this person who's now a successful public official, says, when I was 19, I got arrested for DUI. I was an alcoholic at 19. And your dad was the leader of the group that I went to at Yana. And she said, he turned my life around. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you never know? No, no. That's awesome. never know. So, long story short, for those who are listening, if, if that event happens, please come back. Because one of the other things I've learned in my life as a sponsor is so important. I, I say this only half-jokingly in my court to people. I need a sponsor for chocolate and Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, I fight a daily battle with those two damn things. I, I'm a runner. I'm not fast, but I've run 30 marathons. My 31st has come up in December. And if I could stop eating chocolate, and I need a sponsor, that when I've got that bag of, you know, I'm about to buy that king-size bag, buy that, what do they call it, share-size yeah, bag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Share. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sharing any of this. I need someone I can call who will talk me away from that, right? Right. And so I tell people. Help you play the tape. Oh, no. So many people come to me and say, oh, I, I'm quitting. And I go, do you have a sponsor? And I will often adjourn their case. I'll continue their case. They have to come back to me and show me they have a sponsor because it's just critical. You, know, you think you've learned the way, but you got to have that person you can call and say, hey, help me. The sounding board. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Somebody to be honest with that will be honest with you. You know, it is often said in AA that, you know, when you relapse, the only thing that has to really change is your sobriety date. You know, you can continue. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't back. lose everything that you've learned throughout the years or however much time you have. You know, you don't lose that. It's it's right there with you. You just got to – the the biggest thing that, that people struggle with when they go back out is – 
that shame. Mm. It's not coming back to, to face everybody. What the reality is all of us in the rooms want nothing more than you to come back yeah. and we're going to love you and hug you and love you until you can love yourself again. So absolutely. If you go out, please come back. We always have a, 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 a spot in our heart for you. I would be with him uh, in Home Depot and you know, he was a builder. He was used to being there. And there would be people that would come up and say hi to him. And I would think, okay, how in the world? Is he running for office? Yeah. yeah. And he would look at me and he would go, friend of Bill. And so it was just this network, you know, of, of people that, that supported each other. But, you know, they wouldn't go into great detail, but he'd say, hey, Carl, how you doing? And I was looking at my dad, and that, because that, friend of Bill. Yeah. But yeah. Well, what are some things that, as a prosecutor, like, one characteristic I have noticed about attorneys is this, uh, you know, assessment of the human condition. Because people generally only come to an attorney, I don't care who, what attorney it is or what facet of the law they, they practice, they, people come to you when they have a problem. And you develop almost a, the mentality of a psychologist. What are some things that you've noticed or have surprised you? as a prosecutor, or the flip side's true, well, as a criminal defense attorney. Surprised me. Uh, well, you know, there are a handful of things at this point in my life that I've learned along the way, and I go, yeah, that's true there. So, for example, uh, research indicates that all animals, humans included, have one of two responses to stress. We either fight through it or we flee from it. And so often the people that I see whether I'm prosecuting or defending, is they've used substances to flee from whatever that stress was. Is it financial? Is it relationship? Is it low self-esteem? And by the way, another theory of mine that comes from my days. So I was a senior in high school and my dad went to AA. And I went on into college, went to Millsaps. Well, this was 1979. I graduated more in 79. So I'm at Millsaps 79 through 83. You know, I was a pike. And for any of your listeners who were pikes at Millsaps, they immediately go, oh, yeah, that was the party fraternity. I mean, that's what we did. And drinking was, I mean, and, and by the way, at that point, you could drink when you were 18. And so the stadium cup, full of alcohol, well, my mom was just mortified because what she had learned, she says, hey, there's a genetic connection. You're predisposed to be an alcoholic. So oftentimes, I would fill my opaque stadium cup with just Coke or just Sprite. You know, and act like I was drinking, you know, so I could have that cover. But what I learned was I would look around the room and see that there was an inverse relationship between drinking and self-esteem. The people who had the lowest self-esteem would drink the most. They were escaping that. You know, the people who had the higher self-esteem, they were good. They didn't need alcohol to escape. So I would say, trying to answer your question, uh, people that come to me are often fleeing stress of some sort. Many of them have low self-esteem. And by the way, let's not confuse being an extrovert with having high self-esteem. There sure. are plenty of extroverts whose self-esteem is like that. And that was sort of the issue with my dad. My dad could command the room when he had to, but his self-esteem was low. As a builder, he was having to go to bankers to borrow money. And he just felt so much smaller than everyone else because he was a smart man, but he didn't go to college. And I think he always felt like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm less than other people in the room. So... A lot of people that I see, they're fleeing a stress, and they've just gotten in trouble with it. And it's whether they're, you know, poor or rich, rich folks driving, <clears throat> drinking and driving, you know, they've got something in their life they're trying to avoid, so stress that they're trying to avoid, low self-esteem. Speaking of drinking and driving, <laughs> yes. I hear, I hear y'all know each other. We do, yeah. So when I first came to um, Mississippi, um, I found myself at um, a rehab out there in Copac on 43 in Brandon. And um, I, I just, I found myself uh, in, in having a little bit of uh, issue with getting behind the car, uh, getting behind the wheel while uh, highly intoxicated and uh, and my, my mom and dad reached out to me this morning and wanted to say thank you. And, oh. and they, since I told you, told them that they were, that you were coming on the podcast, they've just been just overly, well, be sure to tell him that, um, he's one of God's people, uh, for us in, in Mississippi. I'm like, I, I will, I will. So 
uh, you were instrumental in the beginning of my um, recovery journey, and I, I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. He helped me out big time. <laughs> I didn't anticipate hearing that story. I didn't know about it. So that's, uh, you probably, as a prosecutor, don't get many of those gosh, thank yous. Well, okay. So let me tell you, uh, uh, there's one in particular, and I went and got this when uh, I knew I was coming on here. So this is a, a little card for those who are watching that's postmarked October 27, 2015. And I'll read you the letter because I still have the chip. This guy gave me his five-year AA sobriety chip. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm going to leave some names out. I'm going to change a little bit so as not to identify the person, though. We'll call this person uh, Johan. That's not nearly his name. But we'll Johan's call him Johan. great. <laughs> so this is dated October 22nd, uh, 2015. Dear Bodie, and let me give you some backstory. So this guy was arrested for DUI. He was drunk, and in the course of being drunk, he got a gun out of his car. Uh, he pointed the gun at some people. He got arrested for a felony charge. Um. I, I knew I knew of him through some secondary sources, and I knew that this is not the way he would normally live, but he had a felony charge, which normally should be bound over. It should be sent up to be prosecuted as a felony. For reasons I don't totally understand, the mayor of Ridgeland, Mayor McGee, the, the chiefs of police that we've had during my tenure, the judges, give me a lot of discretion to do things. They have supported that. And so this was a case where um, I thought, you know what, this guy doesn't need to go to prison. He's, he's, he's got a drinking problem. He, his wife was a professional. Uh, bottom line is I put some standards in place, which I often do in my court. I want you to get an assessment by a professional. I want somebody who has a license to say, hey, you need treatment, or you don't. There's some people who it's, it's an anomaly in their life. So I, I put some conditions in place for him, and part of that included, after getting that assessment, that he had to go get treatment, he had to get sober. <clears throat> I had him come back and stay sober for a while. So eventually, that felony charge that involved him pointing a gun at someone and, and arguably trying to rob them, uh, he, it, it, was, it was a fast food store. This person was so drunk, and they got pissed about not getting their food, that they went in waving a gun. Okay, so I don't want to give you the impression he robbed someone. But eventually, we got rid of the felony charge. We, he was convicted of the drinking and driving charge. So I get this letter from him in 2015. That had happened in 2010. And so I've saved the letter. It stays on my desk, and I've got the chip in my car. So, dear Bodie, I'm writing you on this October day to say thank you for giving me a second chance. It is hard to believe it has been five years since that tragic but life-saving day for me in my life. You gave me an opportunity that few fortunate people get, a second chance to a new life. It has not been an easy road for me, but it has been a rewarding path. Since that day, I have given, I have gone through many God-given changes. After getting out of treatment five years ago, I spent nearly a year out of work. It was not easy, but was a time filled with fear, but also a time of spiritual growth. By the way, he was a licensed professional. He had to get his license back. I became very involved in my recovery in AA. I have had many blessings from the 12 steps, the fellowship of AA, and from God. <clears throat> Since then, I gained employment, and I won't say where, but in the course of that employment, he eventually became a supervisor. At the time he wrote this letter, he had been a supervisor for two years. He said, then God blessed me with my current position, which was another promotion. I have remained very active in AA and have had many opportunities to work with troubled young men. God has given me a new and rewarding life. He has saved my marriage, which was 21 years last June, and saved my life. I, <clears throat> I wanted to give you my five-year chip as a way to say thank you. Without your past, this moment would not have been possible. I truly believe God works through people and has a plan for me. <clears throat> God put me in your court 
and worked through you for me. I hope that I can be of service to God and my fellow alcoholics that still suffer. If you ever know of men that I can share my experience, strength, and hope with, don't hesitate to contact me. I still go to a meeting every day, now in my sixth year. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, and you played a big part in my story. <clears throat> Thank you again for your gift of an opportunity for recovery. So, to me, the, and it, it, there's, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. So much that comes out of that. But, and so I saw him about five years. And by the way, here, this is interesting, so providential. I go and get this out of my mailbox on October 31st of 2015. And that day, I was driving to the coast to lead an ethics hour in a CLE seminar on drinking and driving. I, I was an old philosophy major at Millsaps, and so some of the lawyers in town know I have an interesting outlook on that. But I go on Halloween Day, and I am that day going to speak on the ethics of drinking and driving, defense work, and prosecution. So I took the letter, read the letter, showed him the chip. Uh, but I saw this guy five years later down in Hines County Circuit Courthouse, and he was bringing his 18-year-old daughter in to register to vote. Yeah. yeah so. so for the folks out there who are wondering, man, that right there is powerful. It is powerful. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, there really is no more perfect recitation of how through misery, your childhood, your experience mm -hmm. with your dad, your compassion, your empathy, and then your willingness to forge what is, in essence, like your own kind of drunk court in the Ridgeland Municipal Court. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm telling you. Supported by Gene McGee oh, and whoever yeah. the chief of police is there. I mean, that's 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 the gold standard right there. Well, they, they just give, and by, now, by the way, there's some people who don't want to get right. Sure. Um, and some of them I see again, and I... But yes, we, we get so much ability. Uh, Todd Thompson, is that a name? Yes. Name? Okay, so I've learned so much from Todd. Todd is, I call Todd the dope whisperer. <laughs> so Todd is in my court every Tuesday. And anybody, even if it's not a, maybe it's a shoplifting. But in reading this, I realize, okay, this is a substance abuse issue. I send them to talk to Todd right there. Well, this dovetails nicely into what I was going to ask you. What do you think the real percentage of people that find themselves in hot water, what percentage is because of some sort of abuse? I mean, uh, addiction problem. Uh, 40 to 60%. Wow. Maybe more, but yeah. Yeah, because e even people, <laughs> um, about once a month, I will say to people that marijuana is the apple in the modern day Garden of Eden. I know there are a lot of people who say marijuana is no. I've already good. thought about asking you this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are you, it, Bodie? Are you, as a prosecutor, going to smoke marijuana come January when you can buy it at the dollar store? I, I'm not going to smoke it, and but I, I, to me, it's beer, like my generation. Now, I, by the way, I used to say routinely in court. We're in Mississippi, and I know it's considered legal in a lot of places, but the only way it's going to become legal in Mississippi is five minutes before the rapture, that the governor's <laughs> going to see Jesus coming. Well, I'm, I'm having to eat those words. But it, it is, I think it is in many ways a gateway into just, just more behavior that just gets you in trouble. It, it's just helping you escape rather than fighting through something. It's fleeing from it. And so I don't think it's evil. I think way people use it, it becomes that way. But let me tell you guys, half of the cases I see now on Tuesday in my court, it's possession of marijuana. Half of them. And, and they're not evil people, but they, they, they're smoking dope in the car. I, I often say to people, smoke dope like old white men drink whiskey at home. And stop at Taco Bell on the way so that you don't get in the car and go back out to get something to eat. Well look, how are y'all going to parse out do you, so for those listening, uh, if you get pulled over and you exhibit all of the hallmarks of inebriation, but you somehow manage to blow a 0.0, .0. you can still get a DUI. 
called zero, a DUI. Zero, you can still oh, get sorry. a DUI. Sorry, please. Go ahead. So how how is how are y'all gonna how are y'all gonna handle this? Well, so there's a couple of ways to proceed on this. First, on the law, to your listeners, the easiest way to convict someone of DUI other is if marijuana. If it, the, the, there is no measurement in alcohol, there's a measurement. But right now, the state of law in Mississippi is that if you, if we somehow get a confession from you, or if we have a great smell in the car, it, it's driving under the influence. It doesn't, I don't have to show erratic driving. DUI alcohol, if you take the test and you blow under, then you have a defense. If you refuse, then all I have to do is show that you had some alcohol in your system or that you admitted to drinking. But DUI other right now, it's almost unfair. If you if you admit, hey, I smoked a blunt this morning and it's six o'clock at night, I got you. You're going to be convicted because there's just no measurement yet. And it's too expensive. To try to create the system that will somehow measure the amount in your system is just way too expensive. And so the law is just going to continue to take the easy way out and say, well, okay, you're convicted. I mean, this is going to, you know, the... the uh I'm trying to remember the story that goes along with helping describe or define the law of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think when uh, the, the chief example you can find online is uh, the, the French government was going to pay peasants in Vietnam uh, to clean up the rodent problem. Okay. Like you were going to get paid, you know, uh, and it could have been in Korea for all, I, I don't remember. It was one of the provincial governments and what happened was these peasants realized I can just go farm rodents because what you would do is you you know the French government would pay you ten dollars per mouth per rat <laughs> and they realized all these Vietnamese farmers were just having rat farms right. and they'd go and kill them and they'd get their ten dollars or their ten francs or whatever so you know there's always the law of unintended consequences what happens when you eat your edible at 8 a.m. and you're involved in a car accident at 5 p.m., they're going to test your blood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how how are you, how is a person going to defend against that? How is a person not going to get hemmed up with some negligence lawsuit? I was describing to for Danny how Richard Schwartz makes his money. You know, he is not a trial attorney. He just brokers deals with insurance companies. Right. So Richard Schwartz is going to capitalize on this because if I can prove that you had marijuana in your system, I'm going to increase the likelihood that I can prove that you were negligent somehow. Right. So, I mean, from the negligent side and the civil liability all the way to the criminal, I mean, this is... And look, how are y'all going to determine if the weed I have in my bag came from the dispensary or it came from... Uh, Tyson down in uh, fortification. Pookie and Ran Ran. To be totally transparent with you, I I don't know. Actually, the command staff at Ridgeland, I am part of that group. And a week, we meet on Wednesdays, and a week ago Wednesday, I said to the group, we we need to have some strategic planning on how are we going to handle this? Because, let me give you an example. No proof of insurance. In Mississippi, you're supposed to have proof of insurance. And it's usually a car. Now, you can usually have it on your phone now, too, but... People, you could get a fake card, and so the police at the scene, you hand, you pull out a fake card, and they'll go, oh yeah, okay. So they're going to be these fake cannabis permission cards. These, and they're going to be that. So that's going to be the first issue, and then you know, I don't remember exactly how many ounces you're going to be allowed to have, and then apparently you can have ounces also for people in your household or per ounces a month. It's going to be a cluster mm-hmm. trying to figure it out, and and, part, and frankly, one of my worries. Is it someone who's totally legitimate, get stopped and arrested, and then they go to three on your side, and they go, hey, look how I was treated. I was mistreated because because a cop goes, man, oh, come on. You don't have that card. And arrest somebody, and then it You don't look out. like you have glaucoma. Right. Yeah. yeah I, it, it's going to be it's gonna be a mess. It is going to be a mess. I'll tell you what else is real scary. So... I may or may not have known somebody that bought drugs off the dark net. And <laughs> it's like what's available out there is truly, truly alarming. So 
recently on an episode of Joe Rogan, he had Dr. Phil on there. Hmm. And as an interesting aside, do you know the show Bull? Yes. That's about Dr. Phil. Oh, really? He made his money as a jury consultant, a psychologist jury consultant. Wow. And I had no idea. I didn't either. Well, uh, there's big money in that. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. But anyway, so Dr. Phil was telling to Joe about some of the people that he's talked to and the fears that he has about the counterfeit pill problem. And I can tell you, it is a problem. Uh, for in 2014, for 69 cents a piece, you could order 10,000 fake Xanax bars that are generally called Hulk bars because they're green and they're they're advertised as being 3.5 milligrams of alprazolam. Now, legitimate uh, Xanax, the bars, mm-hmm. are 2.5. So, I mean, there's no question that this is somebody with some raw materials and a pill press right. and some green food coloring. But aside from the color, they're absolutely indistinguishable from the real thing. And Dr. Phil tells a story about a young girl who was uh, studying for exams or something. She, by all accounts, was a good kid. And she either wanted some Adderall. She either wanted the boom from the Adderall or she wanted the, you know, I just need some sleep because I've been cramming. And she bought a fake pill and she took one half of one half and her parents found her dead in her bed the next morning. They know that she took one half of one half because they could trace what she paid for it. And then they found three quarters of the pill in her bedside table. So what are y'all going to do, y'all the the law enforcement side, when little Johnny has a bag of what appears to be jujubes or M&Ms or whatever and... I mean, how, how, how can we stem the tide of this being available to children? Because it does look like candy. Oh, it's amazing. The packaging? It, it's oh. insane. Yeah, no, I, 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 about two years ago, I was at a prosecutor's conference, and an assistant attorney general from Colorado spoke and had slides with pictures of the stuff, and it looked like all the popular candies. I mean, you had to look closely to what go, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't say M&M's, or that doesn't say Mounds Bar. I, I, I don't know the answer. Out there, they had... Tomato sauce that you could buy. They had everything. They had marijuana. Yeah, yeah. Part of one of the things they said was a problem is people would come to Colorado on vacation. Chocolate chip cookie. And that chocolate chip cookie would have what would really be considered four doses. Well, people didn't know. And so they would eat the whole chocolate chip cookie and then crash and end up in the emergency room. I I, I don't know what the answer is. I I really don't know where we're going to go and try to enforce this. I hope that the answer is to be real honest with your kids about drugs. So I have an 11-year-old and two 10-year-olds, set of twins, who were just here a little while ago. And they, I'm sure, know more about drugs than the average 11-year-old. Right. Because Daddy fell off the face of the earth for a little while. Uh, my ex their mother has family members with addiction problems. And, you know, I tried to be real honest with them about where drugs come from, uh, you know, taking medicine that you don't get from the doctor can kill you. Right. And then, sadly, whenever I hear about somebody that overdoses and dies, I tell them. Because, I mean, I have a bona fide addiction problem, and they are going to get that genetic predisposition. So, uh, I hope, for my own sake, that being real honest about it can be of some benefit. Because I certainly know more about drugs than my parents ever did. Right. Uh, I mean, they were all about just say no, but you know, they did the best they could. Sure. Um, you got anything on this? I know that it's scary, you know. I because uh, he has a teenager. Yeah, he's fifteen, um, and it's scary because um, you know he's. We we try to be as open and honest with him as humanly possible, um, but there there comes a point where you know 
I'm, I'm dad and he's the child and whatever dad says is stupid, you know? So we, we, my wife and I try the best that we possibly can to be as open and honest with him in discussing, just like what, what you said, you know, that there are things that, that might appear as though they're harmless and they'll kill you. You know, you absolutely have to be 100% on top of your game as far as, you know, and, and, and peer pressure is another issue as well. You know, I, I was the worst with peer pressure when I was growing up. You know, I wanted, I had that desire to be liked and to be loved. And, you know, it, it's, it's an absolute miracle that I got sober when I did because now there's, there's fentanyl and, and meth. There's fentanyl and every kind of drug that you can get. And all it takes is one little shard and you're done, you know. So I think to, to go along with what you said, being honest and, and having open conversations with your kids is, is a great place to start. I don't have the answers to everything, but that sure seems like a good route to go as far as helping to ensure that kids don't, you know, get hurt with what's out there today. Now, I did learn this off of Dr. Phil, that uh, there is a burgeoning business on Snapchat and Instagram mm -hmm. where they sell these things. And kids have developed an emoji code that, you know, like, and Dr. Phil had the form where, you know, it would show you what, like, it's a code, like Morse code. And a certain group of emojis means a certain drug, and a certain group of emojis means an amount, like the, the quantity, and then a certain group of emojis represents the cost, therefore. And in larger cities, you can just, you know, click, 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 emoji, emoji, emoji. And somebody shows up at your house an hour later. When when I was using this last time, uh, I had never used Snapchat before. I downloaded the app, and within 15 minutes, I had identified and was on my way to get drugs. I had never used it before. My technician that was working with me knew a little bit about it. We got on, and within 15 minutes, I had I had found drugs. What say you, Mr. Prosecutor? Is this a surprise to you, or is this... Oh, no, 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 no. It's not a surprise at all. Uh, yeah. I used to speak every once in a while at schools. My, my kids, well, I have a 15-year-old. I'm an old dad. I have a 29-year-old, 22-year-old, and a 15-year-old. And my now 22, when she was at St. Andrews, I was going to speak uh, at St. Andrews and had worked up this presentation about social media and all that. And we're driving to school, and she says, well, you know, Dad, there are two schools. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there's the brick-and-mortar school, and there's a the virtual school. And she said, a lot of times, you, you're, you try and aspire to be somebody different in the virtual school, you know, to be cool in that school, as opposed to what happened in the brick-and-mortar school. And so kids get in trouble trying to be somebody more than they are right. in, the, in the virtual school, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all those things. Man, life is way much more difficult to be a teenager now than when I was growing up. It's incredible. Look, I don't know if you've listened to any of our other episodes, but we've talked about this before. Um, the danger that is present for, and it seems to have a disproportionate impact on young girls, about how Instagram just makes you ugly, makes yeah. you feel ugly. Yeah. And, you know, Instagram or Meta or Facebook, toyed with the idea of having an Instagram for kids, and they pretty quickly had to table that because they, I think everybody said that's going to have that, a, a deleterious impact on them. That's going to have that the uh, prevalence self-injurious behavior like cutting has something like 300% increase. Uh, you mentioned once we got started about uh, social media and certain I made a decision, not sanctimonious about it, but about three years ago, I, I just, I tried to get off Facebook. Apparently, I'm not able to, so I still get some notifications. So I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who think I'm being a snob because I won't friend them, but I can't even get back into the account. But I, I read someone who said there's a study that shows, ultimately, there's psychological harm's a strong word, but most of us on Facebook, we look at how great everybody else's life is, and we think ours doesn't measure up. And, you know, I, I just thought, I, I'm sure I'm missing out on connecting with certain people, but I, I just don't have enough time in my life to go and look and go, oh, wow, look at me, my life doesn't measure up to that. So I, I got off Facebook. When you leave here today, and listeners, y'all need to go watch this too. There's a gentleman. He's the most interesting person on the internet. I promise you. His name is Jerome 
Lanier. J-A-R-O-N and Lanier that looks like if he were French it'd be Lanier. L-A-N-I-E-R. He's generally known as the godfather of virtual reality. He's an odd-looking cat. Great big old fat white guy with dreadlocks. And he plays some ancient musical instrument. And once you get over how he looks, what he can describe for you about how you're manipulated by social media companies will blow your mind. So in a nutshell, they realized pretty early on that the name of the game, well, number one is that you as the social media user are the good being sold. Interactions and interactivity is the, is what is the root of the commerce. The only problem is you're not the purchaser or buy, uh, you're not the buyer or the recipient of the benefit. It's an unknown third-party advertiser. So we're the commodity. You're the commodity. And you're, the time that they can keep you on it is how they sell more to the uh, advertisers. And they learned early on that the best way to keep somebody involved is to make them angry. You're looking for the dopamine. Uh, like Stanford's uh, uh, graduate school used to be called, oh, he said the name, it was uh, technological uh, manipulation. <laughs> like that was the name of their, like the, Millsap says the L School of Management. <laughs> Stanford had the tech manipulation school, and they had to change it to something else because it just sounded too bad. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that's why Trump is so popular, is because he can make people angry, and they, they buy in, and people are more interested in hearing things that they agree with that make them mad, and it's peculiar. And so, I mean, this is absolutely how Facebook has made a gazillion dollars. YouTube does the same thing with its algorithm for what videos it shows you. You know, Google only suckers you into thinking that you're getting all this stuff for free. I get Gmail for free. I get Google Drive for free. But at the cost of your free will, really. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Indeed. All right, I don't want to get too far, because I can talk about that for a long time. You really kind of buzzed through some of my main topics here about horror stories and success stories, because that letter is really... Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I will say to you, when we're talking about making mistakes, I used this example with a client the other day, and I was in a room with his dad, who's a very successful professional, and a friend who's a very successful professional, and the son is sitting here. And I know they thought I was crazy, but I looked across at the son, who's mid-20s. I said, do you remember the Lion King? The, the, the young man was looking really down. He's facing some serious troubles. And I said, do you remember the Lion King? He said, yeah. I said, do you remember that scene in there where Simba is growing up on the screen? He's, he's going from being the young lion to being the, the big lion who's got to go back. And he's struggling out in the savannah with going back. Exodus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rafiki comes in, and and Rafiki knocks the shit out of him with that <laughs> big stick. And he goes, ow, what was that for? And Rafiki says something that is so profound. It doesn't matter. It's in the past. You either run from it or you learn from it. Absolutely. And so all this stuff, Lord of mercy, I, you said something about making crazy, uh, ill-fated, Lord of mercy, I'm 61. I will continue to make stupid-ass decisions. Hopefully I will learn from them. And that's part of what I've tried to say in my core. Do you think any of us up here have figured this out? Anybody? We, we continue to make mistakes. Podcasts that I listened to, I, this, I heard this three years ago. I think about it every day. The psychologist was talking about changing behavior, and she was giving some tricks on how to change behavior. But she said, look, here's what's going on. You're always having a fight between the present me and the future me. If you're trying to lose weight, you wake up and say, okay, I'm not going to eat chocolate anymore. And so the future me wants to have dropped seven pounds in a week so that I won't eat chocolate. But then, 10 o'clock in the morning, you're hungry, you walk by the vending machine, and you think, you know, just, just this one time. The present me says, oh, it's okay. But there's always that struggle. We're always struggling between where I am now and where I want to be. And we give in to the present me because we want something now. Immediate gratification. Instant right? gratification. Yeah. yeah. But again, I just want people, hey, 
It's in the past. We either learn from it or we run from it. And it's back to that fighting or, you know, fight or flee. Well, you know, you asked what was the, the impetus for the podcast, and it's kind of what you're talking about. I can't change the poor decisions I've made, but I can wrest some, some benefit from it mm. by normalizing recovery. Uh, you know, it's no secret that you know, uh, I went to that lawyer's AA meeting for a long time. My work schedule doesn't really allow for me to go as much now, but when I first started going, and I'm sure you'll know who some of these people are, there was an old attorney there. I think he's passed away now. And he used to talk about going, he said, he must have gotten sober in the early 60s. Yeah. And he said, you know, I got out of treatment and I would go to the where the meetings were and I'd park in the back and I'd park down the street because I was embarrassed and ashamed. And he was telling this story of his shame to one of his friends. And his friend said, look, you need to park in the front under the light. Everybody in town needs to see you're going to this AA meeting. <laughs> Because, you know, everybody needs to see you're living right. But the benefit is, if we can be louder and more upfront, destigmatizing recovery, more people might get on board with it. I agree. Yeah. Look, here's the deal. All right, so everything that we did, drinking and using, created shame. The shame, sure. shame, shame, everything, all boiled down to shame for me at least. So the the... The main goal that I want to move forward with and, and is, is to teach folks that, you know, first of all, the difference between shame and guilt. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did bad. And there's a huge, huge difference. And thanks to Brene Brown for that. Brene, if you're listening, please, come on. Let's, uh, let's get you on the podcast. Anyways, uh, if you've never heard of Brene Brown, she's one of the most remarkable individuals. She's a shame researcher. Uh, look her up on BreneBrown.com. It's absolutely amazing. Anyways, B-R-E-N-E, I believe. Um, So the the main thing is, yes, you did a lot of horrible things when you were drinking and using, and it created a a, a large amount of shame. So what are your, you've got two options. Are you going to use that shame and that that, uh, regret to form who you are today, or are you going to use that shame and guilt to get in a, a depressive state of, self-loathing. So what I want to do is show people the way and encourage people to realize, you know what? Okay, I did. I'm, I'm very ashamed of what I did. I did bad. I was bad back then when I was doing all of those horrible things. But today I can tap into every one of those negative things that I did. I can tap into to, to help that individual sitting right over there that is in the exact same place that I was at that time. So do I regret the horrible things that I did when I was drinking and using? To a point, but I'm unbelievably grateful that I have those experiences to be able to help someone else who may be coming along. And for that, I'm void of shame. I do not, I am not ashamed of, of what I did and who I did because God kept me alive. God kept me, you know, and, and now it, it's my opportunity to give back and show people that, hey, you don't have to let that shame, you don't have to be defined by who you are and what you did back then. Today you have a new life and, and you can move forward and do amazing things in recovery. So, Yeah, it's more than just showing them, it's changing them because they go, ooh. I mean, Al-Anon does the same thing. Sure. I, mean, I send a lot of parents to Al-Anon because they get there and go, oh, wait a minute. You mean there are other parents facing this issue? Right. And oh, I am enabling, but I mean, just go find a group of people and you go, ooh. I thought I was the only one battling this issue. Believe me, you are not the only one. Yeah, growing a sense of community is one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Yana means you are not alone for oh, a reason. I, I did not right. know that. Yeah. Huh. My parents are huge Al-Anon folks, very heavily involved, and they 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 will they will they will go to Al-Anon until the day they die. I mean, it's just it's it's so wonderful to not. To, to realize that you don't have to do this alone. Yeah. Because addiction and, and alcoholism, uh, in every sense of the word, it is a family disease. So it's it's important to have help and support to move forward. Well, look, when, when little Johnny gets hemmed up in Ridgeland and he's got a possession charge, how can he find some help? What are some resources out there that you know about? Well, 
I, I want them to come to court because I've got a couple there. Todd is my go-to. Court watch. Well, Todd's is not court, court watch. No, I've got court watch there also, and they also are a resource. But, you know, Todd, first of all, there are occasions when I'll read a narrative, and, I, and I'll think, and by the way, I'll put on my little sticky note. I may put it, if I put an H on there and I circle it, that's to remind me the person was honest when they got stopped. That's a big step for me. And then I'll have him go talk to Todd about the program he has, the first offender program that he has called ARCH. And I'll say, hey, Todd, was this an anomaly? Was this someone who was a passenger in a car? Was this someone who really was borrowing their aunt's car and we found some marijuana in the car? And, you know, one out of 19 or 20 times, Todd will go, this person's not a problem. And, and honestly, usually I'll just remand the charge. But if they come, I will often say, not often, every Tuesday I will say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to help you unlike any court you go to. But don't bullshit me. If life every day is a party for you and you want to keep smoking dope and just pay the fine, don't waste my time and don't waste the time of the other people I have in the courtroom. We'll have you plead guilty and you'll pay a fine and if there's some jail time associated with it, you know, we'll probably suspend the jail time. But if you want help, I got a couple of people. So Todd is one and he's got an arch recovery program that I think it's eight classes. I think it's eight, but we normally give you about 10 to 12 weeks to complete it. You got to pee clean at the end. You pee clean at the end, the charge is dismissed. You can get it expunged. If your life is a little more complicated, I may use Court Watch because Court Watch will do, they have a pretrial program also, but they're going to give you some, so a little bit more hands-on monitoring. So especially if you've got a criminal charge associated with it, let's say we arrest you for shoplifting and you had some paraphernalia, then I may send you to the, to the Court Watch route. Same, similar situation, you've got 10 to 12 weeks to go through their program and you've got to peak clean at the end. But in both cases, at the end, you walk away with uh, the charge being dismissed and you pay a lawyer to get it expunged and it never existed. And, and, and so also, we do something similar with felony charges. Utah, about five years ago now, maybe, maybe longer than that, but I want to say about five years ago, Utah put together uh, an interesting group of people, doctors, lawyers, economists, psych psychologists, psychiatrists, treatment professionals, all sorts of people, to take a look at the, the economics of prosecuting drug crimes. And in effect, Utah, I think relatively a conservative state, made some huge shifts in terms of how they were going to prosecute or not felony possession cases. So if you, if you have a, an amount of drugs that are barely felony level, just barely, and the case of arresting you, you know, you weren't out with guns in the car and you don't have paraphernalia in the car, you don't have scales and baggies. If, if this looks, if this is your first time and you've got a number of pills that put you one or two over into the felony charge, very often, if you're willing to get help, I will keep that as a misdemeanor. So, and part of that is because, frankly, our crime lab is overwhelmed. That's part of the issue. But part of it also, me reading some of those studies, is the economics the psychology, um, this is really the good government thing to do is to get these people now, jerk a knot in their ass and say, okay, get right. And I will often say to people, I'm going to help you this time. If I see you again, ask my children how that goes. <laughs> so again, some of it's a little bit of a shock. Buddy the hammer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. An out warrants officer who, who is retired a few years ago, he gets stopped in the parking lot one morning. This guy's got a manila envelope. Hey, man, hey, man, I need you to take this in there. This is the rest of my fine money. And the officer says, I, 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 I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not going in there. He says, I'm not, I can't do that. you got to take the rest of my fine. I'm not going in there because I don't want to deal with Bodie Justice. <laughs> Which is funny. Bodie Justice. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not a hard ass. I mean, I, I do bark at people, and I will occasionally embarrass people. But part of the reason to embarrass them is there's science that says if you find another sense to get a lesson across to someone, that lesson stays with them longer. So sometimes I'll call people up. Their mom will be there with them. We'll have a 23-year-old guy whose mom is there with him. And I'll, I'll call the mom up, and I'll go, is he still nursing? Oh, what do you mean? I said, he's 23. Can't he make his own choice? And so I'll chew his ass, and I'll embarrass him in the courtroom, and I'll say to mama, if he does this again, beat his ass. Drive back into Ridgeland. I won't prosecute you. <laughs> but again, trying to find some way to, to make that connection. 
I think the most important thing you've said, all right, listeners, if you want to know how to get the H on Bodie's notepad, <laughs> you got to tell the truth. It, it, when, you can't build from a lie. That's right. If, if you know, we'll pull someone over, and I say this in court. There is science about the smell, the olfactory system. If you smoke dope in your car, the science is, I'm, I think it's 30 days. 30 days of exposure to a, a smell basically numbs your own sense to it. So if you've been smoking dope in your car, when an officer pulls you over for speeding, you don't smell the skunk smell. They do, and there's their probable cause. Right. Smell marijuana. Why are you getting me out of the car? Well, there's all I, all I need for the problem. It's not like a bong in here. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when, when people are honest and go, yes, officer, I do have it, and, and I'm sorry, and this is their first time, I'm going to help them. Now, when they lie and say, you know, I know that's Cheech and Chong in the backseat, but I don't know what right. you're talking about here. And then we find all sort of stuff, no, nah, you're not being honest with me or anybody else. You know, the truth is the police officers have far more experience in dealing with you than you do dealing with them. Right. They do. They're good at finding you oh. out. Man. And just be respectful. If you get pulled over, just be honest and respectful. Like, and you won't have any problems. Like, you may have legal problems, but if you're honest and you... you you're not going to get that nightstick. Yeah. Like, just be a human. Be a good human. About once a month, I use this little story. And it's, it, it's, it's for humor, but also, I'm an old school teacher. I, went, I taught school before I went to law school. You taught me con law. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. I loved, I loved being a school teacher. I was always a dog person my whole life. Didn't care for cats. So I had a friend a few years ago who had a cat, and I got to know cats, and I thought, ooh, I love cats now. But so I'll ask people in the courtroom. This is usually when I'm embarrassing someone. And I'll say, ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. If I pour a bag of dog food on the floor in front of a dog, what will the dog do? Well, they'll eat all they can. If I pour a bag of cat food on the floor, what will a cat do? I'll just eat what they need. And I will then say, smoke dope like a cat <laughs> at home. Right. What, what, why, are you, why are you driving around in your car smoking dope? I, you know, People who love fried chicken, they don't carry a cast iron skillet <laughs> and chicken to fry in the car while they're driving to and from work. Mm-hmm. I hope that's what we're getting to. Now, I will say this to you. Sometimes I do help people who are so honest. They get caught smoking dope in their car at an apartment parking lot. Officer is driving through late at night. How often is this happening? Oh. The dope in the car? Because I, I know that's a thing. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, oh it's, it's consistent. Oh, uh, oh my gosh. You don't come to Tuesday court with me. And it smell. It, you know, they call it loud. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. of the... And, I don't get it. Yeah. We had to have, we were renovating our courtroom, and so we had to have court over on the police side in roll call for about four months. And to get in the front door of the police department through the lobby, you had to walk past the evidence room. And you would see people who would stop like a police dog. And right. they, they could smell, because, you know, we've got to where we keep the drugs. Right. And honest to goodness, you see people go, ooh. <laughs> if they didn't know what they were walking by. That's when I go, okay, yeah, yeah, they, they, they smoke a lot of dope. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it got to be funny. Or Pepe Le Pew's in there. Yeah, something, <laughs> something fishy. Well, we, are, we have about two more minutes. We at the hour? We are just about at the hour. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or get into? Or? Uh, I think reading that letter was really what I intended to do at the end for people out there who, who, who can't see the future. Right. You know, that one day at a time. You're in a prison now. You're in a different prison. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to be in a real prison. But you're in a prison now. Reach out and let people who've been down this path, let them help you and get you out of this substance prison you're in. Well, I think what happens to most people, and I felt this way, you just cannot conceive of a way out. Mm-hmm. I was homeless, penniless, jobless, carless, and living... And at, now. At, yeah. And it, it's not like... There's no magic to this. Stop doing meth. Stop doing heroin. Don't shoot up Dilaudid. It's almost impossible I mean, to do it alone, though. Yes. There, and there yes. are resources out yes. there. There are plenty of resources. And, but and, you can and, either go to AA, 
Bodie Justice and don't put you in the poker. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, you know, I got to go stay in the Rankin County Jail a couple times, and yeah. it's unpleasant. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, I can remember the first time I was there, and I thought, I've learned my lesson. And you know what? They still don't let you out. They don't care. They don't realize that you're different. You know, that door locks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Going to jail sucks. It does. But there are resources and there are ways out. And if you find yourself in that, in the depths of hell that is uh, drug and alcohol uh, addiction, uh, reach out. You can always get in touch with Drew and I. We will be more than happy to help you in any way, shape, or form. And um, you know, there's there's lots of resources on the internet. Um, you know, just all it takes is that one little desire to do something a little bit different than you've done before. And uh, and I think that you'll find that there is uh, a tremendous life on the other other side of uh, of active addiction. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all for what you're doing. Yeah, buddy. Thank you for taking the time. I mean, yeah. really. Awesome. It's an honor. Awesome, it's an honor man. We asked. Absolute awesome. All right, gentlemen. Well, with that, we will wrap it up, Bodie. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right. And.